2: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the programme this week, can the Breakers become the first New Zealand sports team to win an Australian club competition? The V8 Supercar Series hits Hamilton, we catch up with elusive former all-black Christian Cullen and we talk to American lecturer and former NBA player Bob Bigelow about what's driving young people away from sport. Can the Breakers go where the likes of the Warriors, the Phoenix and the Waikato Bay of Plenty Magic have all failed and win an Australian sports competition? After beating the reigning Australian National Basketball Champions Perth in the third and deciding semi-final game on the North Shore this week, the Breakers will play either Townsville or Cairns in the finals series. Ford Micca Vacona played a key part in the wins in games two and three after suffering a knee injury that many thought would rule them out of the remainder of the playoffs. But he told Murray Williams he's not concerned about any long term injury as he looks forward to the
3: finals. It's time just to get all these injuries, I mean, it's fixed up as you can, and uh, start preparing for whoever Townsville can, um, but just mentally refresh ourselves, you know, a couple of days off, uh, not days off, but going to training, but, uh, you know, put this behind us, you know, but just take all the positives that we did all uh, the last couple of
0: days. And Gary Wilkinson, a pretty big game there, and CJ too, he, he seems to save himself for the big occasions, doesn't he? Yeah,
3: I mean, big players step up at big times, so uh, Gary, he was always... Uh, by his uh, virus that he had, and um, just watching him at, um, shoot around, you know, he just seemed like the old Gary, so he knew it was something, uh, Gary was going to have a big night, but CJ always steps up, you know, he always look at his leadership and just, you know, he's got three championships, you know, the guy's a proven winner and a great leader, so... You didn't need to worry about it, CJ.
0: you it looked like Richie McCaw the way he's hustling for the ball there at times. Yeah,
3: definitely, and it's great because uh, he takes control. That gets everybody uh, feeling good, but also just more composed out there, and uh, he does a great job at that.
0: And there was a good range of scoring. No, like, was it was just Kirk with thirty-eight points. There was a lot of people around in the, the high teens, and, and Gary was top top scorer with twenty. Yeah, I mean,
3: and Kirk did a great job in uh, distributing the ball. I mean, we knew they were going to mark him. I mean. They thought he was a, you know, it was a one-man team. But tonight we showed, you know, with the ability to pass and find the open man, uh, we showed that we're a true team.
0: And I guess they gave you a lesson on, uh, on, the, on the first match last week, so you, you'll take that lesson into whoever you play on Wednesday.
3: Definitely. We don't want to come out flat. Definitely don't want to do that, and especially in the finals, everything is on the line, starting from game one, and we need to come out with the intensity that we've shown in the last couple of games. And the weight of, uh, the weight of the
0: nation on your shoulders, because no New Zealand teams have won an a Australian club championship.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great challenge for us to go up against, and uh, first off, though, one game at a time. I mean, it's cliche, but uh, that's something that we need to do, and um, we can do it.
2: That's Micah Vacona talking to Murray Williams. Ending the domination of Australian driver Jamie Wincup appears to be the theme of this weekend's round of the Australian V8 Supercar Series in Hamilton. It's the fourth year the city has hosted the event, with Holden driver Wincup dominating for the past two. 27 drivers will contest the round, among them perennial New Zealand favourite Greg Murphy, who says some drivers are getting a bit sick of the way the series is being dominated by just a few teams. He spoke to Andrew McRae about how he and other New Zealanders, Shane Van Gisbergen and Fabian Coulthard, who's currently running fifth in the competition, hope to do something about that.
4: I'm a very par- a parochial Kiwi, and you know we we got this amazing event here, and you know I'm biased obviously because I race cars and this is a motorsport event, but um you know yeah it's it's exciting to to, to be able to come home and and um, hopefully uh, you know produce the goods. First round was in Abu Dhabi, and we uh, we as a as a team didn't didn't uh, shine. Uh, round two at Adelaide was definitely a big improvement. We've had a non championship race at uh, Melbourne Grand Prix, which again was another gain, and we finished the weekend on a bit of a high there, and and uh, so hopefully we're going to continue that momentum. Um, we've certainly been uh, uh, focusing on some key areas. In the workshop and the team, and and we, we, we've got a lot of confidence going. You know, uh, Rick Kelly, who's uh, team owner but also team boss. Uh, um, you know, he's been showing some some great speed and, and some very good consistency. And our cars are all pretty much the same. So, you know, we've got to try and emulate what he's been doing. He's very comfortable in his car. This is the third car for me in three years, so it's a little bit different. It's taking a little bit of time to get used to, but not that's not an excuse. And you know, we know that um, by some of the form that's been shown within the team. You know, we're on our, on track. Where do you see uh, the, the strongest competition coming from this weekend? Oh, the usual usual suspects, you know. Um, you only have to look at um, the results of the last few races to see, you know, who we'd expect to be at the front, but, um, you know, uh, we, we need to turn that around, you know, I think there's a lot of cars, a lot of drivers out there, again, you know, but it's pretty sick of uh, the domination that's uh, out, out there by a few teams and... Um, it'd be nice to see some changes. You know, I think we the Kiwis have got a, a reasonable chance this weekend. Out of Shane and, and Fabian and myself, so you know we're all showing a little bit of form, and um, be nice to be nice to turn it around and have a bit of domination from the from the Kiwi power what do you think of the hamilton track well, this is i think we to race uh four, four. Year, four years mm-hmm. of it um what do you think of it uh, it's it's an enjoyable for a race driver to drive there's no doubt it's, it's incredibly challenging it's only a short little track but it's got a lot of a lot of difficult corners uh it's difficult to read sometimes it's hard to get a get the flow going around here it's very easy to make a mistake um so it's it's a challenge um but it is good it's got some got some tough parts which make it a, a really unique little race track and um, you know, we—I uh, don't know any of the drivers that don't um, don't speak highly of it. I think the forecast for this weekend's for a bit of rain. So are we hear. What difference will that make for you? It makes a big difference for everybody. I mean, we got to change the whole way we sort of uh, approach a circuit like this, especially because, you know, in the dry we've got no room for error, and uh, in the wet that's um, that's reduced even more. So I don't know how you can go from no room for error to to less than that, but. Uh, uh, it becomes a lot trickier, and, and obviously it's not as good for the fans. We, we want it to be dry, and, and so everyone can enjoy uh, enjoy it um, without getting wet. But um, I would advise you bring your umbrellas. It's Greg Murphy talking to Andrew McRae,
2: and you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Houston. The numbers of young New Zealanders giving up on sport continues to grow. With Spark, the government's sport and recreation agency saying the loss of members threatens the club structure of sport in the country. Spark says figures show participation in secondary school sports dropped from 56% to 51 in recent years. The American lecturer and former NBA player Bob Bigelow was the guest speaker at a recent sport and recreation sector conference in Auckland, and he says there are a variety of reasons young people drop out of a sport, including a lack of encouragement. ...and unrealistic adult expectations.
1: What I like that they're doing here is sort of the professional coaching angle. Not that not everybody here gets paid to coach... And you do have a situation at the younger levels where that happens. But what they're trying to do is at least standardize, in a way, the coaching education. So people who are going to be working with kids at the various age groups understand a bit about kids. Uh, One of our biggest challenges in America is well over 90 percent. I don't know what the number is. It could be in the high 90s. Are volunteer adults, they're most of the time well-meaning, but they don't have any clue about how to coach kids, what's involved with six-year-olds and eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds. So that is a huge, huge challenge, and will continue to be, just because of the scale of our country.
2: The dropout of youngsters from sports, a big problem globally, particularly from from leaving that high school age group. Uh,
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I wish we had that problem in America. (laughs) Our dropout rate from 10 to 13 is phenomenal in our country, and they've done the studies. Uh, Basically, we know that by 13 years old that we are going to lose 70% of the kids who were three years ago playing at 10 so that we know
2: and that is down to to what
1: Uh, Many, many, and it's not just a—it's not the problem of adults. I mean, some of it comes down to poor coaching. Some of it comes down to uh, bad adults, that sort of thing. But oftentimes it comes down to the age group you're talking about, uh, which we call middle school, and there are other things going on in their lives. They have a little more worldly perspective, and they might want to do other things. Oftentimes it has to do with burnout. Some of these kids have been playing a sport or sports since age five, so they're now into their seventh, eighth, or ninth year and maybe it's time to do something else. So it's not all sport-related, and it's not all uh, adult behaviour-related either. It's just part of a growing child and what's happening in his or her life.
2: How much of a problem do you think... I mean, you talk about the adult expectation of youngsters yep. and also specialising them way too early. Do you, how much of a problem is that, and how much of it do you think might be responsible for that, that high dropout rate?
1: Mm. It would be partly responsible, and it is a problem, and it's a growing problem in our country because the adult mentality is if you start earlier, if you do it more, you're going to be better later on. That is the common, as I call it, American adult DNA, and basically science has proven it isn't. It's not out there, and it's one of the messages that I try to sell.
2: I mean, that would be a problem, presumably, globally.
1: Uh, it's a, it can be a problem globally, depending on the uh, different sports. Generally, your individual sports, Stephen, your tennises, your gymnastics, those kind of sports uh, tend to breed that kind of ethic. You know, Get them in there earlier and get them uh, specialized. Whereas even our team sports in America, although they're getting more and more specialized, our soccers, our footballs. Our basketball, our our football, American football, generally they're not necessarily playing solely at age 10, you know, 365 days a year. Thank heavens. But we're coming in that direction too.
2: So up until what age then should children be giving everything a go?
1: Never specialize until 16 or 17, which in our school system would be junior year in high school, third year in high school of a four-year school. Um, I've seen no benefit, and I've been around this long enough to know and you are talking to a very much teenage-obsessed basketball player when I grew up, but I didn't start playing until I was 13 or 14, so I had a lot of pent-up energy. But I see no basis and no benefits at all to narrowing down or being sport-specific until maybe the, you know, two years before university. And then I tell kids, okay, if you think you got a shot at playing, narrow down. But I think there are great benefits for playing other sports. And one of the laments of our high school principals and athletic directors in our country <clears throat> is that kids narrow down way too soon. And there's two problems. Number one, they would benefit from playing for other coaches and meeting new kids and playing and having other teammates. And number two, uh, they could be even better in another sport, and they'll never know. I mean, I've got all sorts of stories, thousands of them, of kids who finally took up another sport after having played a sole sport for too many years or majoring in a sport, and all of a sudden, 14 or 15 years old, they find themselves, my gosh, I'm better in this sport than I was in the one I've been playing for 10 years.
2: So who's driving that specialization?
1: It is being driven by a culture of adults, uh, not only parents, but uh, also uh, club administrators and support administrators, who oftentimes this is moneyed, and pay me more money, and make sure you play three or four seasons a year, and you're better than the other kids. But if you want to stay better, you've got to you know play the thing whole year round, and that gets tough. And oftentimes the mere mention of it by the coaches and administrator has to do with propping up the club with their coach their coaching and administrating. It's money. That's how they pay the bills, and that's really bad when they're doing that. But that happens all the time.
2: If money is such a, a driving factor, I mean, how are you going to change that? Because
1: that's... yeah, no, we live in a land of capitalism. I understand. Yeah, America is, and no one's more capitalistic than America. Let's face it. So yes, that just makes that makes the job harder because it's driven by uh, money and driven by monetary decisions. But as I tell people all the time, I, I understand capitalism, I'm an American, I, I grew up in it. But are you w- willing to risk your child's health, physical and otherwise?
2: Is there an understanding, though, that only .01 of, of all the people playing a sport are actually going to make it into any professional type of league? Yep. I mean, that, that... Presumably, a lot of parents are, are what, trying to live vicariously through their kids.
1: Yes, uh, they not only live vicariously, but, uh, and they may even understand the statistics. However uh, minimal it is, the number of kids who actually make it through the system and become a pro. But, uh, and, and I'm very good at uh, outlining all those statistics. But the challenge of being a parent with a kid that may be better than the rest, or you know, one of the better ones, is there's always a chance it will be my kid. And I don't want to deny this kid the chance to make his dreams or her dreams So oftentimes the push comes from the parents, because I'd hate to look back in 10 years and have my kids say, well, I could have been a pro if you hadn't got off the treadmill. And at age 13, you would have given me another season or paid this amount of money or sent me to this camp or specialized training.
2: How much of a chance is there of solving this problem, though? I mean, you you obviously go around spreading your, your message, but is anything changing?
1: Well, there is almost no chance of wholesale change. What there is a chance of doing, as I've been telling people for 20 years, is you tweak around the edges. What you try to do is get more and more people thinking about it, and if you get enough people thinking about it in the various communities, maybe they'll hold back another year or two of really competitive stuff rather than just loosely competitive stuff. So that's where I probably do my best work in America. And I get the question from the media all the time in America, so, Bob, what have you done (laughs) in the last 20 years other than go around and talk a thousand times? I said, yeah, my wife asks me that all the time. But what I've tried to do at the community level is get people to wake up and get them to think outside their very narrow boxes and hopefully look at this as a child's endeavor and say, do we want our children to grow up like children or do we want them to be chip off the old block of adults who are intense, and want them to you know, enter this Darwinian system and learn it as quickly as possible, because life is competitive, and that's what we do with kids. Or as a friend of mine once said, when did childhood ever become training camp for adulthood? I'm not talking about rocket science. What I'm talking about is children, how they grow, how they live within the context of play, what they think about, what they want to do, what don't they want to do. So I approach it from a child's aspect, and then I challenge the parents. I said, you tell me this is all about the kids. Everybody says this is about the kids but are your actions and your behaviours reflecting that?
2: I was talking with American lecturer and former NBA player Bob Bigelow. The elusive Christian Cullen played 58 tests and scored 46 tries, and his speed and flair is arguably unmatched at fullback for the All Blacks. He was then controversially dropped ahead of the 2003 World Cup when the side was coached by John Mitchell and Robbie Deans. So what's he up to now? Martin Cross from the International Rugby Board's Total Rugby programme caught up with Cullen during the recent Hong Kong Sevens.
5: I mean, I've got three young kids now, so it's, um, yeah, I've got business interests uh, in Wellington and Auckland and uh, you know, a bit of property stuff. I do a bit of coaching with Murray Meigs at IRANs in, uh, in New Zealand. Come up here and you know, we're going to hopefully come up here a bit more with um, this Asian Pacific side and, and travel around Asia and do stuff here. So, yeah, fle- re- really flexible play a bit of golf, but you know, it's good that I can be flexible and uh, you know, sp- spend a bit of time with the family, which um, you know, when you're playing it was quite hard to do.
0: Rugby World Cup coming up. Um, can anyone stop the All Blacks? Because everyone who, you know, from my hemisphere is thinking, this is the All Blacks World Cup.
5: Yes, they can, because um, there are teams around the world at the moment that know they can beat the All Blacks, whether it be overseas or in New Zealand, because I've, I've done it before. But it's going to be tough. They're, they're going to have to be at their peak And I think the All Blacks will just have to be a little bit off their game. But, I mean, you you watched Aussie play the All Blacks here in Hong Kong. And they beat them. You watch South Africa play the All Blacks. And the All Blacks come back and won a few of those games where they probably shouldn't have. So I think the Springboks think, no, they can beat the All Blacks. And I think England, I think they always play well in World Cups. And I think coming down to New Zealand in the winter, they're playing a reasonably expensive game. But they've got that tight game as well. But I think, yeah, the one team that I'm worried about is the is Australians. Because I think they, you know, smart side, Robbie Dean's in there. But I mean, the All Blacks, they'll be hard to beat. Great, great balance in their side at the moment with old heads, young guys. But, you know, if one guy goes down, we could be in a bit of trouble.
0: Who were your heroes
5: when you were playing? I mean, I remember the, the World Cup in 87 in New Zealand and watching Serge Blanco for France play. So, I mean, his, his style of rugby probably was how I ended up playing in the end guys like him, um, Andre Joubert, I love watching those guys play, you know, it's free-flowing and I love to run the ball. Um, in New Zealand, yeah, I mean, Fitzpatrick, Zinzan Brook, Joe Stanleys, uh, Frank Bunce, you know, guys like that, John Kerwin, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of guys you can, <laughs> you can look up to in New Zealand for rugby-wise.
0: You made your All Black debut and then I think you, you <laughs> went away to South Africa and you won the series, so what was that like?
5: For me, I mean, it was my first big tour, I was only uh, 20 at the time, so the, I suppose the uh, tradition of the All Blacks and what South Africa meant and not having played them or won a series over there didn't really sink into me. I think a lot of the older guys, like uh, there was uh, you know, Zinni and Fitzy and, and Jeff Wilson at the time, I think it meant a bit more to them at the time. I think when I sit down now and think about it, There was guys, I think Don Clark was at the time, and Fitzy said when he came off the field after that game in Joburg, when he won the series, you know, Don Clark was crying and gave him a big hug and and all that sort of stuff. So I think now when I sit and I think about it, it's a pretty special moment. But at the time, I was a young guy, pretty naive, I just thought it was another game of rugby, we won another test match.
0: What was it like just being a fullback, where you had you know, such a great team, where you had almost freedom to express yourself at any time?
5: I was pretty lucky when I played. You know, obviously Jonah, Jeff Olsen, uh, Tana when he came onto the on the scene later on, even in Ramirez So these guys are easy to play outside and inside because my my probably biggest strength was support play. So I knew nine times out of ten when Jonah got the ball, he was going to draw two or three or four players in, and there's going to be a space somewhere. So I, I just you know, ran into holes, and hopefully they would give me a pass and easy, easy try scored. So, you know, my, during my career I was pretty lucky. I did play with some pretty special players um, who like to run the ball.
0: Were you always fast, by the way? I mean, was it something that you really worked at, or was it just a natural I mean, at school were you winning 100
5: meter races? Yeah, I was, I was an active kid when I was young, so I suppose I was reasonably quick for, for a white guy. But there's a lot of kids now, I, I, we do a bit of kids coaching, and a lot of kids have got talent and speed and all the skill, but they haven't, you know, they haven't got that drive or that work ethic and kids that haven't got all that skill you know they want to work really hard and eventually they overtake all these kids with skill and I think I got to a point where I was probably fastest and best player in my, in my college but then I got to a point where I made like a New Zealand secondary school that didn't really hit me there's a hundred other kids in New Zealand that were just as skillful and fast and as strong as me and that's uh, probably when I was about 16 I realised have to go and work, work hard to to get above these kids that have got the same same abilities.
0: 99 Rugby World Cup, you, you got moved to centre. I mean, that, you know, probably not particularly where you wanted to play. I mean, how did you handle
5: that? John Hart came down and we had a meeting and um, the coach at the time and, and kind of asked me, and probably at the time I said, well, I'll do whatever's best for the team. And, you know, I want to play, so I'll play anywhere. But, you know, I sit here now thinking, well, I wish I had said that. I wish I had said, I want to play fullback. But, you know, it's happened. And um, I suppose the tournament itself was probably frustrating for me because I think you need to be playing in a position to be for you know a few more games than two or three to, to be good at it. And probably at that time there was other guys that could have probably filled that spot better than I could. I mean I think my position was was fullback or possibly wing. So for me that tournament was pretty frustrating. Um, but I mean it's happened to the all blacks two or three times. I mean they've probably moved a centre in there that probably shouldn't have gone in there.
0: Um injuries. You suffered quite a lot with injuries, um, how, did you find that easy to cope mentally? Were you a, a, a good injured player, if I could put it like that, or were you a bad injured
5: player? I suppose in my, during the All Blacks sort of, in New Zealand, from like I'm, I did my knee when I was 16, I did my cartilage. So I think back in those days they, they just whipped the cartilage out. So from 16 to whatever, I had bone on bone, so I got through alright. But I think at the end of the career, when I was probably probably 20, 28, 29, you know, it started to get a bit sore, then I moved to Ireland and then I had three shoulder operations, and so all my injuries kind of came at the end of, end of my career. I started getting hamstring injuries and yeah. calf strains, and just injuries I'd never got before, and I think really frustrating, but that's, that's rugby. You get injured. I was, I was just, I'm quite pleased now I didn't get injured like a lot of injuries early on in my career where you, you, know, you, you play, and then you're out for six months, and you play you're out for six months. I got my injuries in bulk, <laughs> unfortunately, when I was in Ireland, which was uh, frustrating because I was away from home. Away from friends, and I suppose quite tough to be injured when you're on the other side of the world. The Irish people were great, the, the boys there were great. I mean, I turned up my last game in New Zealand, hurt my shoulder, got there, got a scan, and I was six months out and I hadn't even put the boots on. So for them to, I suppose, keep me and not send me home, um, you know, thankful to them for that. And they, you know, they looked after me and, you know, came back, played, played a few games in a row, then did my other shoulder. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the way it goes. They were, they were really good about it. I enjoyed yeah, yes and I enjoyed the lifestyle. I think the weather got to me after a while. I mean, I think one summer it rained every day at some stage during the day, which kind of got me down. But when I wasn't injured, um, yeah, I mean, you spend a lot more time at home. I love my golf. So golf courses over there were pretty special, and uh, we played some pretty awesome golf courses. So all that sort of stuff is, um, you know, memories I'll never forget. and I've got mates over there now that um, you'll have forever.
2: That's former All Black Christian Cullen. And that's the program for this week. You've been listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues